Welcome to another installment of the Theology on Tap podcast presented by St. Louis Young Adults. In this second installment of our summer series on hot topics, we're pleased to bring you Dr. Kara Buskmiller, who spoke to our audience on hot topics in reproductive ethics. Dr. Buskmiller is a consecrated virgin for the Archdiocese of St. Louis. She received her bachelor's degree in liberal arts from Thomas Aquinas College and is currently finishing her stint as chief resident in OBGYN at St. Louis University. Dr. Busmiller will be getting a Maternal Fetal Medicine Fellowship in Houston, Texas. At the conclusion of Dr. Busmiller's talk, we're happy to bring you some of the questions and answers from our audience. We apologize for some of the low audio quality, but we're really excited about some of the content that was able to come out in these questions. Gen Top Podcast, and be sure to keep a lookout for many more great Theology on Taps and other events from St. Louis Young Adults. IVF. IVF stands for in vitro fertilization. It literally means fertilization in glass, making uh, a zygote, a human embryo, come to be in glass. It's not done in glass anymore because that's kind of dangerous and there's lots of regulations around this. Um, it's a family of techniques. So IVF doesn't exactly refer to one thing. IVF refers to a process that might use a lot of different techniques to help a couple or a woman or a gestational carrier or surrogate get pregnant. Um, why? Is IVF seen as good in our culture? It's because children are good. Families are good. These things are true, and that's why these objections carry weight as well. IVF is a powerful way to get people to bear their own genetically um, related children. And I think it's very important that whenever we talk about IVF, we recognize that likely some of the people we're talking to are touched by IVF, and sometimes that touch from IVF can be a very positive and good thing. Families are built this way. People are around us who weren't around us because of IVF. The effects can be good, but let's look at the thing itself. Let's not get distracted, because philosophically we have to be very careful when we talk about these things, what is good and what is not. Effects, we can acknowledge, are good. I love that people are building families. I love that people want to love children. I love that people want to see their own faces in their children, help them to flourish as they grow up. What's problematic about IVF? Um, gametes, so gametes, sperm and egg, they can be from the couple themselves, they can be from friends, they can be from the internet, I'm not kidding. Um, probably not. IVF is a very well-rated, um, specialty-driven process in medicine. Um, so again, the, the idea of sort of back alley IVF and things being kind of dirty or dangerous is, is not very accurate, and I think that's not a helpful um, counter-argument or belief to have about IVF. IVF is complex, like I said, involves medications, involves imaging, involves um, replacing the woman's with a lot of control. And again, just because we're controlling something and replacing something does not mean it's bad. We control a lot of things in medicine. We replace a lot of things in medicine. When you want a child, you want IVF. So I think it's important not to use the counter arguments that don't carry a lot of weight because we deserve to know what's true and have good, good reasons for what we think. Okay, so IVF is prohibited. These two instructions from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Donum vitae and dignitas personae. Why? Um, complicated answer. Very difficult to answer. A little bit more difficult than unitive and procreative split up equals bad. So we have to zoom way, way out to understand why IVF is problematic. And the zooming way out looks at God's plan for how human beings come to be. To get a hold of what this plan looks like, we have to kind of erase some ideas about who we are and what we are. We have to restart with the idea that human beings carry a lot of dignity in the eyes of God, which is a little puzzling because we're like very imperfect and he's like perfect and loves what is good and we're like not those things, at least not yet, I'm not. So 
it's puzzling why he loves us this much and why he dignifies us this much, but you can see evidence treats us with such dignity in the respect that he gives to our free will. The little tiny will of this little piddly creature on earth, he respects with sovereignty. It's strange. That's why hell exists. He respects us, right? That he respected Adam and Eve. He respected Mary. He waited to ask for her permission for the incarnation. Huh? Um, so he respects us. Why, why he has this, we can talk about that ad nauseum later, but that's really key to understand he wants to treat us with great dignity. To create a new human being, to create a new permanent fixture intended for the celestial community for eternity, he has a very specific beginning in mind. And he has really kind of a dream childhood and a healthy relationship, a healthy family and, and growing up experience, and a beautiful life full of full of actualized love and, and perfection, and then a glorious death and eternity and happiness forever. That's pretty good. Part of that, at the very beginning, is that he calls people to be co-creators with him. This is very specific. I can't do that in my vocation. Only sacramentally married people are fitted with this privilege of becoming co-creators. That's his, his, that's his plan, anyway. The plan kind of goes awry because sin is a thing and, and we're not perfect and et cetera, things that I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure you're not shocked to hear. Um, but this, this extremely privileged state of being a co-creator, part of marriage, children having the right to grow up with a father and a mother, which the church actually teaches in those words. That's a literal right according to the church, not R-I-T-E-R-I-G-H-T. That's his plan for creating a new saint. Part of his plan for creating a new saint within marriage is sex. Sex is good. Sex is how we're meant to come about. We're supposed to be, I mean, you, you hear stories of heroes, right? Maybe like some, some Marvel movie or some epic poem. But you know, he intends something like that for us. Each of, he, each of his heroes is born during an act of exclusive, extraordinary self-donation between two people who are living a life of self-donation and constant acts of the will all the time. So that requires these two co-creators, which is a very special privilege, to have this beautiful act. Now, the church thinks that's so important because we think God thinks it's so important that we think it shouldn't be interrupted. And that's the, the key here, the key problem with IVF is that the co-creators are not the only people who are helping with the birth of this new saint or helping with the conception of this new saint. There's a technician involved and the church thinks that's fundamentally problematic. The two people who are entrusted with the duty of doing this are not given the privilege of doing this. Instead, they cough up their cells, someone else combines them, raises the embryo, reimplants it, sometimes not in them, sometimes they weren't their cells, and it gets very messy, and it breaks up this dream that God has for the beginning of each of us. I think it's very important to recognize that that does not diminish the dignity of anyone conceived in this way, um, and does not, and we need to approach very carefully the people who've chosen to build their families in this way, because we have to be very respectful of their intentions, which are often fundamentally so, so good. Okay, so we talked about donum vitae, dignitas personae. Many other infertility treatments are listed. So this last bullet is talking about what is actually true of the rest of the Catholic teaching. Right? We just talked about the no, no, no. Let's talk about the yes, yes, yes. So IVF is a particular type of fertility treatment. It's somewhere between 48 and 56, sometimes higher, percent effective. So it's not, it's, a, it's kind of a flip of the coin, sometimes more effective, sometimes less effective, depending on variability largely related to the woman. Um, 
but many other fertility treatments exist. So there's fertility medications that help women ovulate. There's, there's surgeries that help women and men be more fertile. And these are all okay. But the reality is, so saying that that's all true and that's all cool, there's options available to people who are wanting to live according, want to live according to the Catholic teaching who want their children born in that kind of heroic act. It's really important to recognize sometimes we say all those yeses, we still do say a no. And so in contemporary gynecology, there's options that are not available. To Adoption is more readily recommended to people who want to follow the church's teaching because there's not this big, long process and multiple options of IVF. And I think I, I can admit that with honesty and actually not without happiness because adoption is also a really beautiful thing and images almost more perfect, almost more perfectly than natural parenthood, what God has done for us. Okay, that's IVF. Sterilization. Sterilization, low risk, highly effective procedures to remove or divide part of the genital tract in men or women, which permanently causes sterility with a small failure rate. It sounds like I'm advertising it, right? Sorry. Um, <laughs> I am a gynecologist. It's hard. So I, what I, what's important, though, is I'm telling you the truth. And it's really important to me that I not, like, sugarcoat things and say these are very destructive procedures and dangerous and true. It, um, so I, I, people who are getting their vasectomies, getting their tubal ligations, and getting their whatever else to sterilize them, it's really important to recognize that these things are very well-respected medical treatments, very commonly carried out. We've got them down to a science, and it's pretty safe, and it works pretty well. So why is this a bad thing? Someone's got a terrible disease, and if they get pregnant, they're going to die, which those things do exist. They exist. Maybe they shouldn't have any more babies. Yeah, they probably shouldn't. So they probably shouldn't. Should they be sterilized? Ah, it makes it seem really easy. That seems really good. Again, reason, fertility, regulation is a good idea. The church is not opposed to use of your reason to regulate fertility, by the way. We're not talking about NFP particularly because we're talking about hot topics. Oh, wait, that is a hot topic. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I'm just talking about the things that are listed here. We can talk about NFP ad nauseum in the Q&A because I love NFP. Okay, the church teaches that fertility is a good. It's an ability, not that we're born with, but that we develop. It's a very particular ability that's for the sake of others, like the ability to walk, to serve food to the homeless, to drive your brother to school, it's a good ability, and taking it away is taking away something good, something that you were born with, something that you need to serve other people. Now, not everyone's fertility works. Not everyone uses their fertility, case in point. But I think fertility as a good is a really fundamentally strong philosophical position because it really fits with the biology, it fits with the philosophy, and it fits with the teleology of who we are. Multiple documents review this. The church has also addressed tubal ligation for the sake of preserving the woman's life. Finally, secondary sterilization, and this is important to know, this is like the, fo the fourth bullet about the rest of the things the Catholic Church teaches. Secondary sterilization, like a woman needs her uterus out because it has fibroids in it, or cancer in it, or something else, that is completely licit. It is very okay to protect a woman's health, or a man's health, or life, um, by secondarily sterilizing them, accidentally sterilizing them. Christ teaches us that true happiness is not found in insert a bunch of material goods here, including convenience, including material comfort, even legitimate material comfort. Nothing, none of that is, um, gives us happiness, but in God alone, the source of every good and all love. That's uh, Catechism section uh, 1723. Gaudium et Spes, the, the document that uh, kind of forms the bulk of what Vatican II produced, says to acknowledge God is in no way oppose the dignity of man, since such dignity is grounded and brought to perfection in God. In God, we find our flourishing, not in other things. The church full well that her message is in harmony with the most secret desires of the human heart. These desires to be full of love, to be a fountain of love, to be a hero. Okay, um, things don't always go right. This is the abduction of Proserpina by Hades. 
Uh, it doesn't feel that way in the moment. It doesn't feel like you really shouldn't do this thing that's prescribed because actually it would be a lot more convenient and helpful and more comfortable and sort of better if you didn't. So we desire the apparent good. This is Plato, straight out of Plato. We, desi we desire the apparent good because we see it and we think it's the true good. And this is a classic problem of human beings. The third slice of cake looks really good. It's the apparent good I want it. Oh my gosh. And then I realized later, oh, it's not the true good. It's not the true good. I'm, I'm heavily paraphrasing because if I didn't, it would look like uh, it was all Greek to all of us. It's the work of a lifetime to pursue the true good instead of the apparent good, right? It is the work of a lifetime. So just because it's it doesn't feel that way in the moment doesn't mean that that's, it's the right course of action. We have to learn that the true good and the apparent good are really different things. And the work of life, this is Lucifer. Uh, oops, sorry. That's Lucifer. It's a credible statue. We can talk more about it. But this is a statue that shows remorse, regret, emptiness, something that was really lost and permanently lost. And this I put to remind ourselves that we are ephemeral creatures. Our lifespan is limited. So as we're trying to seek the apparent good, we do have an end game in mind. And I don't want you or anyone, me, whatever, to end up feeling a sense of loss at the end. And we live in a beautiful church that believes that God is completely just. And at the same time, with a harmonious belief, believes that he's completely merciful. And it's confusing, right? It's, it, it's another big theological concept, and we're not going to use that to illustrate a smaller theological concept. But what's really important to know is that God desires our happiness and desires that if we've messed up in the past, that we seek what's truly good. And if we're confused, that we seek understanding. Um, and often, Christ is through suffering, through mortification, through denial of what we thought was good, and through perseverance through what is actually going to glorify us. That's the dying Gaul, another incredible statue that preceded Christ, by the way. This is St. Matthew in uh, the Basilica of St. John Lateran. This is an example of a person who's triumphant, right? Um, if Lucifer is an example of total remorse and regret and emptiness at the end of a life that, or at the end of a choice, right, he had one choice, the end of a choice that left him empty-handed, this is a man whose hands are full. He gave up the life of a tax collector. This is a man who's had victory over that. And in his celestial glory, which the artist depicts, he's not just reading a ledger of his taxes and his profits. He's reading a gospel, which he wrote. Great glory, personal, uh, personal perfection in a way that's unique to each of us, awaits us if we look for the true good in difficult things like the things we're talking about. So we talked about the facts about birth control, IVF, and sterilization. I hope we gave voice to objections that are real, that have weight, because there's a grain of truth in them. And I, I hope we talked about how human flourishing is served, not opposed, by what the Catholic Church teaches. This is St. Joan of Arc, personal hero. She was a saint who pursued what was truly good, not what was apparently good, in difficult moments. And I hope that we can all live to become our own personal version of something really beautiful that God has in mind when he thinks of us and loves us. What would be the best thing advice to uh, give a fellow Catholic who's struggling with, this, uh, with these issues to uh, try and get to, you know, they, they know that the church is teaching against these things. What would be the best you know, bullet point advice mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. give them to try and help them get their conscience more in line with their uh, religious desire to be aligned with that's a beautiful question. I think that's a very important state to recognize that exists when your head and even part of your heart say that this is the thing that I want to pursue, but other parts of me and maybe the situation that I'm in doesn't make any sense with what I think. And I think that the answer to that is always um, nurture and be positive. Uh, and it's pray more, seek Christ more. It's go to the top level of the truth, not stay in the nitty gritty and keep arguing with yourself back and forth about what your situation is like and what the good thing is or the convenient thing is, because then you're stuck in the apparent good. You're stuck in, what do I see before me that's right? Don't 
trust yourself. It's all about trusting in God. So build your relationship with Christ, and he will lead you to the truth. Uh, can you talk about the cases of when there's conception but not uh, implantation? Um, what, what should we do morally in those cases? Yeah. Uh, how, big, how big of a deal are those? Because that happens mm -hmm. with some frequency. That's a great question. So the question for anyone who didn't hear, I think we heard pretty well, is what, are, what is the situation when people who are using hormonal birth control, pills, patches, rings, IUDs, um, what happens when there's an embryo that seems to, to arise and then never develops into a pregnancy? It's a loss, embryo loss, embryo death. Um, and if you do think that life starts at fertilization, that's deeply disturbing to you. It's deeply disturbing to me. Um, I think there's strong philosophical work actually done on when does human life begin, and it nails, it nails it down to a particular biological event within fertilization, so it's not like people are slovenly and we still are like wondering, like, oh, does life begin at conception? I don't know. It's pretty clear to me <laughs> that life begins at a particular space in fertilization, which is sperm-egg fusion, and we can talk about snare proteins and the way that actually happens, but probably we shouldn't. <laughs> it's, I bring it up because it's really important to these zygote losses, these losses of single human organisms, I think should be weighed equivalent to another human death at any stage. So we should be as disturbed about this as we are about abortion, as we are about feticide, as we are about assisted suicide, as we are about any death that's really unjustified because it's not only the life issues and the hot topics that we care about, it's other unjustified deaths as well. But it's, it's deeply disturbing to me that this exists and that women have been kind of sold this and people have ignored it almost in a systematic fashion. And there's some evidence of that in papers that I can forward to you. Uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about this. How effective is birth control at helping with other medical issues other than avoiding pregnancy? Birth control pills, when you take them month to month, and a, a particular hormone-filled type of IUD, when you use it for you know, months and months and years and years, trick your brain into believing that you don't have to produce enough hormone. It's honestly a little bit like doping, right? You take steroids and your body doesn't have to make any more steroids and stops. We don't want to go too far with that analogy, but the, the idea is it turns your brain off to produce things. It turns the hormone producing organs off that produces things. This is really useful in gynecology as a tool, and you, notice my words are of utilitarian uh, origin. When a woman's having irregular cycles, you can solve that in a second. Give her a pill, regular, regular as can be. If a woman's having abnormal bleeding, stick an IUD in that, bleeding solved, problem solved. Now, the response has been from Catholics that like love the cycle and think it's natural and think it's a vital sign, um, that that's really unnatural. Like, that is not fixing the problem. That is slapping the problem on top of the problem and saying that problem doesn't exist anymore. Um, but the problem is still fix the problem. You haven't identified the problem. Now, some of that is true. Some of, it, some of using the pill and birth control and these IUDs is lazy gynecology, not finding out what the problem is, or just insufficient science. Like back in the days before we knew germs were things, and we just don't understand why some women don't have normal cycles and why. We don't understand. It's a big black box. Some of it's lazy. We just slap a pill on it. We don't know what's going on. This will fix the problem. You'll have predictable periods, or you won't have as much pain, or you won't have as much bleeding. Problem solved. Some Another part of it, which isn't really talked about very much in Catholic bioethics, is not Band-Aid therapy. Particularly, I think, the best example is polycystic ovarian syndrome, which perhaps many of the women in the audience will have heard about. It is a problem with regular periods. It's a problem with 
an imbalance of hormones between some male hormones and some female hormones and kind of getting stuck in your menstrual cycle in a particular time. It's really annoying. It's a bad problem. Birth control pills actually have a therapeutic effect separate from the hormones that they, in, they uh, force on a woman's system. They actually cause the woman to upregulate the production of a different chemical that helps sop up all the extra hormone that she's producing and can be helpful. So there are examples of when it's not Band-Aid therapy and when it's helpful. It's important to recognize that these are medications that are useful and devices that are actually pretty well designed, the IUDs. Don't, don't bring out the witch burning pyre and that all devices that include hormones that are put in women are problematic. Because if we'd been in Christendom and we'd stayed in the Middle Ages and the Reformation had never happened and everything was relatively a little bit more Catholic and we'd developed hormone pills independently, they'd be great and we'd use them licitly within the guidelines of the Catholic Church and within the faith. So hormones does not equal bad, band-aid, terrible, dumb gynecology. It can equal good things, but a lot of the time it's used sloppily. Um, so you talked about a lot of very complex medical issues that come up when a woman is um, seeking that pregnancy. Mm -hmm. How important is it for a woman to have a Catholic gynecologist or OBGYN, and how does one go about that? All right, so it is uh, very helpful to have a Catholic gynecologist or Catholic obstetrician just they understand or you pray they understand where you're coming from and what you're seeking. Um, many uh, non-Catholic Christian OBGYNs are also wonderful to see because they are pro-life and they can understand when you point out that IUDs and hormones and things are problems, they respond and you actually kind of start to turn gears in their heads. That said, <clears throat> I've worked with and have been trained by a lot of people who are not Catholic or not anything and they still are very respectful of, of my choices to not do certain things, women's choices to not get certain things done. So my, my experience is pretty vastly positive with people who don't share our, our understanding of the way the world and the human soul works. That said, there are, there are some women who I've met who've had experiences which have been unfortunately negative because they've been advised to you know, do this genetic test so we can find out if your baby has a problem so you can act before it's too late. And they're like, what do you mean act before it's too late? That's, we're fundamentally on a different page. Um, or people who are pursuing, you know, having a child and they're advised repeatedly to go do IVF. So it can be a negative experience and a very sensitive part of your life if you are working with a person who really doesn't understand where you're coming from. But my experience has been that if, if you find a physician who seems to be a good physician, medically responsible, sensitive, attentive to what you want, that you can speak with that person about what you really think is true and what you want. You ask a great question, a scenario that's, that's actually common. Um, a woman is in significant danger if she has another It's very difficult to quantify exactly what the risk is to a woman herself if she conceives another pregnancy, but there's some information that physicians can offer a woman, right? So a man full of love for his wife might say, I'd never want to put you in danger. Why don't I do this so that we can still love each other and, and I never have to worry about putting you in danger? Um, and we'll, we'll put a little asterisk and say vasectomies aren't perfect, but we'll put that asterisk at the bottom and not think about that. We'll assume that vasectomies are perfect and all this stuff. So we can simultaneously understand that this man has a beautiful intention, never to hurt his wife, to love his wife, and to continue to love his wife and be intimate with his wife. But we can simultaneously say this is good 
but not the best. This is good, perfect. And we ache for the perfection of mankind. We ache that everyone understands the fullness. Um, but we also recognize it's really difficult to understand this. That's why, I mean, everyone's been writing about it since Plato, that it's hard to pursue what's perfect. Um, so when in this situation, this man technically has, this, we haven't really talked about the S word, sin word, um, but this is all grave matter, right? And the, and the criteria for mortal sin is that it's grave matter, that you understand that it's grave matter, and that choosing the way that you're choosing is mortally sinful and that you do it, right? So a man who understands that sterilization is grave matter, that fertility is so important to who we are and what we are and how we make new saints, et cetera, a man who understands that understands that vasectomy is part of that and getting a vasectomy is saying no to that and then does it is in a state of mortal sin. And that places him in, a, in his soul in a very grave state, right? If we, if we die in the state of mortal sin, we die in a state of saying no to heaven. And, and many saints in this era of mercy have pointed out that um, it's very important to understand that things can happen at the moment of death that we don't understand. And that's very important for us to take away because many of our, our friends and family and, and relatives, et cetera, might have died with these type of choices on their conscience. But we cannot know what God does at the moment of death to rescue souls from, from perdition. Anyway, technically, a soul who's, who's accepted sterilization and hasn't repented of it and been to confession is in a state of mortal sin. However, the principle of gradualism still applies in this state. And this was a very well-established principle by, by conservative theologians that we can recognize there's some good in that. And we can use that to pursue perfection. I heard from a, a priest on EWTN that when birth control is used within a marriage, it's as if the uh, wife and the husband are saying to one another, I love you, but I don't love you that much. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could explain that further, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That priest is getting, was alluding to that sex is meant to be a complete and total self-gift of all of the person's abilities, including their fertility, their ability to become a co-creator with God, which is this glorious and sometimes burdensome weight that God places on, on the hearts of married people. So the priest is mentioning that when a couple has sex, and when a married couple has sex that's contracepted, they're saying, I love you with everything I have, all of my creativity and my talents and my foibles and everything, except my fertility. I don't want to become a father today. I don't want to become a mother today. I don't want to get pregnant today. I don't want to get you pregnant today. And I think it's very important to realize that like, that's not the conscious choice that everyone walks into contraceptive sex thinking. Um, but it fundamentally is what you're saying with your body and your choice. And we've all experienced this at this point in our lives that you can say a lot without realizing that you're saying a lot in the things that you choose and in the things that you do. And that is the that is the statement that that choice makes. Again, not consciously. I think many people who are using contraception love each other greatly, very greatly. And I think they think this is a beautiful choice for their marriage or for their wife or for their husband. But this is fundamentally what they're saying to each other. And I wish they weren't. So do you have any tips for like, specific verbiage to use to your medical providers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not immediately just stamp this thing that's like, you have to do this. That's right. You 
there's a lot of practical um, stuff that goes into answering your question about what exactly people are telling you to start and stop and do and don't. Um, but I think this is why we need Catholic physicians in all specialties. Um, <laughs> I think it's, it's important to say things like, this is the most important thing to me right now. I want in my marriage to be open to children. What medications can I be on or what things do we need to do so that that's safe for me? And I think that's language I can understand. Safety, your desires, something that's fundamentally good and very fundamental to the human heart. You are not the first patient to ask them if you can have a baby, right? And I think if you just say simply to them, this is the most important thing to me right now. How can we work my disease, my regimen, my something around this? They can meet you where you're at. And you may not always encounter the best attitudes, and I apologize to anyone that's relevant, that this is relevant to in advance. People can be cantankerous, people can disagree with you, and they can accidentally let that slip. And it's not very professional to do. They should try and be your Try and go with your goal. Knowledge can provide you with the information to do. But I apologize if they kind of Or like, well, if you must, then we can do this, that, and the other thing. Um, but I think that's really important and, and to kind of make it fundamental to them so they understand. That's a very, that is a very specific case, but it's not a very uncommon case. Um, so there are cases in which women have terrible pregnancy histories and babies have died, she has almost died, another baby has died, this type of situation. We, the church says we cannot justify primary sterilization ever, ever, which is a very strongly stated position. And it's one of the strongest positions the church has on a pelvic issue. Um, to the level of like abortion is always wrong ever, 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 not even rape, incest, da, 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 da. Um, that's a very strong position. And that's the, a statement to how strong she believes that fertility is a good. Now, she does have other options. And the church has, has released a couple of recent doctrines and old doctrines and reaffirmation of old things that may be relevant to this particular woman. In particular, and there are other things like this that apply to other examples, so I'm not just like pulling one thing out of the air. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith um, has clarified that if a woman's uterus is likely to be a danger to a future embryo and result in loss after loss after loss after loss, you can remove the uterus as a secondary sterilization, like you would remove her uterus for fibroids or cancer or bleeding or other problems. That's a big deal because it's valuing the life of the future embryo as very high, and it's recognizing that terrible pregnancy histories and uteruses that aren't doing what they need to be doing are probably removed just like we remove an infected appendix or again a uterus example and I'd like to talk with you after we're done talking with the masses because there's there's other things to clarify and other options for her I think it's important to recognize that there are things I can't do as a Catholic OBGYN and I don't want to do them but that doesn't leave me optionless when faced with a woman with a situation like this.
Thank you all so much for your time. It was really a pleasure.